Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Each week on the show, we cover topics relating to building and growing ambitious yet sustainable startups. This week's guest is Jordan Gall. You may know him from Bootstrapped Web, also the founder of Carthook. And in this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, I talk with Jordan about what I've seen as one of the gutsiest price increases and sales process changes by going up market that I've ever seen. And the quote that I'm using in the title is, we went from hundreds of free trials to a few dozen on purpose. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 476. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups. Whether you've built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first, I'm Rob. And today with Jordan Gall, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. It's a great conversation today. And in fact, oftentimes I say we have many different episode formats. This one is less of an interview and it's more of me just letting Jordan go on this topic because uh, he thought about it so deeply with his team. And it was it was the realization of, our churn is way too high and we're just running on this treadmill that's getting faster and faster and the business doesn't feel healthy. How do we fix that? It's not one tactic. It's not changing, making people email to cancel you. It's not moving to annual plans. It's not these little tactics. It's how do we revamp our entire uh, sales and onboarding and pricing process and go up market to change the nature of our business. And that's what we talk about today. And it's you can tell during the interview that I'm obviously impacted by it. And I was impacted from the outside. So I'm an angel investor in Carthook. Carthook has, has raised a small amount of money to, it's still very much in that the bootstrapped, indie-funded mindset. Jordan is super capital efficient. He's not on the constant churn to, to you know, raise that Series A, the Series B, and, and go there. He, you know, he hasn't raised that institutional money that, that forces him to go after that. He's very much like... Uh, Brennan Dunn and Ashai with Right Message and, you know, a lot of the other companies we hear about that are in our microconf community, they're in the startups for the rest of us community, they've raised a small amount of money to hit that escape velocity, um, but they're not looking to unicorn or bust and they're not looking, you know, to be that $1 billion company necessarily, but Jordan's in that in that camp and so I love the way he's meticulous and he he really thinks these decisions through and I I really enjoyed the conversation today to set the stage if you haven't heard of Jordan years ago he ran an e-commerce company e-commerce business and if I recall it was with it, like his brothers maybe his dad it was like a family member and they sold that and he had a small exit there and then he wanted to start a SaaS or a, you know software tools for e-commerce and he wound up starting cart hook and originally it was just cart abandonment emails and they've since stopped doing that but they eventually got to the point where cart hook is uh you know essentially replaces the checkout on shopify and so the headline of cart hook is maximize conversion rate and grow average order value today and they have a real competitive advantage they're very much differentiated from a lot of the other products in the e-com space and he's got a lot of traction and as we talk about during the interview you know they're, they're doing several million dollars in arr and which you know, which is a which is a big deal, and they're in the twenty five to thirty employee range, and he's he's really you know just been grinding it out for years to get there. So, what I like about this conversation is I saw it from you know I was getting investor updates, and then I saw the blog post where Jordan was talking about increasing prices, and that's always such a dicey proposition. You know, when when he and I then started chatting about it, because I asked him what the process was and what the thought process was and how they got in blowback. You know, it basically led to the conversation that we have here on the podcast today. 
And without further ado, let's dive into the interview with Jordan Gall. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Rob, thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, man, it's great to chat again. And uh, I, you know, I, there's, I think there's a lot that we're going to dig into today. It's been a fascinating journey. I'm kind of watching it. For, I'm, I'm like from the outside, but I kind of have an inside seat. Uh, you know, as as an investor in Cardhook, and I've watched this transformation that that you've taken over the past year or so. And so I'm really fascinated to to dig into that. The, I think the the nugget for this episode actually came when I saw you raise prices. And you did it so well. You did it so elegantly with, I believe, almost no pushback. And I read a blog post and I was like, it was a blog post you put on the Cardiff blog. And I was like, man, I really want to get you on the show to just talk about what the thought process was there. And there was so much more to it. It wasn't just a price increase. There's this whole story that we're going to dig into today. So you want to kick, kick people off with, you know, letting us know where we're, where we're headed today? Uh, this is a topic I'm excited to talk about, something that I'm proud of. And I think the best way to get started is to really uh, give some context around what these decisions are, what they entail, and why we got to the point of, of wanting to take these, these bigger actions. What I need to do is ask everyone to kind of go back with me about a year. Uh, so the history of our checkout product, 2017 is when we came out with it. It was very difficult technically it was just one challenge after another. And then we released uh, a version two where we made a lot of big fixes and that's when we start to hit traction. 2018 was our big year of growth where we, we 3X revenue and got to multiple millions in ARR. And that was like this wild ride. It was fun. You know, I, I kind of uh, look back on that year very fondly. That's kind of how I always want to feel. So the holidays in e-commerce are always... Big, obviously, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, then the holidays. So our, the end of 2018 for us was gangbusters. Then January, February 2019 comes around and we start to be able to catch our breath and really look at the company and analyze how things are going. And there was one number that stood out that was, that was a problem. It was an obvious problem and something that could not be ignored. And that was churn. In January, February 2019, we're cruising at 12 to 14% monthly churn. Look, e-commerce itself has high churn, right? There's a reason Shopify does not disclose their churn rate because it's much higher than other software companies. It's partly the nature of e-commerce, partly the nature of the market, whatever else. But still, 12 to 14% monthly is unsustainable. And so on first glance, it looks like the company is a washing machine, just like bringing people in, spitting them out, and that's not going to work out for the long term. When we started to really analyze it uh, more deeply, what we realized is that the situation was not nearly as bad as 12 to 14% looked. What was happening was that we were attracting like a top tier of merchants that really fit with our product, the, what they were selling, the way their company was set up in terms of the number of people, how technically savvy they were, all these characteristics from revenue point of view, culture point of view, product point of view, and so on, really lined up with us nicely. And those customers were sticking around for the longer term. The, the issue was that we were also attracting this lower end merchant that, that did not fit with our business. Didn't fit with the software, sophistication level required, pricing, all that. And that large chunk was not staying. Those customers were coming in, doing a free trial, either leaving before the free trial ended or paying once or twice 
and then leaving after that. And so there was a real bifurcation in, in these two, it's not really cohorts, like these two populations. The challenge was how do we, how do we improve the health of our business overall? So we had a few goals. So why don't I like list out a few of the goals that we came up with uh, when we started to tackle this? So we wanted to do things like take more control of our business. A lot of it felt like we were not in control. We just had a ton of word of mouth and it was just a bunch of incoming demand. And that did not feel like we were really controlling who was, who was walking into the system. We obviously needed to reduce churn significantly. And at the same time, we also wanted to increase our pricing to align with the value we were providing. Right? We hadn't changed our pricing since we launched and we were significantly better than when we had launched. And overall, the, like the saying we came up with was, quote, fewer, more qualified merchants. That was kind of our, our goal to work with fewer merchants that were, that were much better fit and much bigger overall. So that's, that's, those were the goals. And the way we did it was changing two big things. We changed our pricing and we changed our process. So, right, you started off uh, this conversation talking about like a pricing change. And, and from the outside, it really looks like a pricing change. In reality, it's more of a process change, like a sales process, like how we bring people on board. And the pricing change served that larger process change. Yeah, I think th that makes a lot of sense. And I have, I have a couple questions for you. You use this phrase, take control of our business. You touched on that a little bit, but is it is it that you're controlling who comes through the the gate such that you only deal with customers that you that are nice, you know, or that are, are I guess, qualified? Or is it taking control? Are, are there other aspects to that? Yeah, there are a lot of different aspects to it, right? It's What's happened over the past few years as I have gone further away from the front lines and from customer interactions is I have become shielded from the, the like kinetic activity, like actually talking and rubbing up against customers on a daily basis. I don't feel that nearly as much as when I started to. And so one of the aspects, so, so the, the anecdote I give was, right, I had a conversation with our support team and I asked them, what percentage of your work is for people who are in trial that won't convert or people that have converted but are only going to stick around for a month or two? And they looked at me and said, probably 80%. And, and to me, that sounded, that sounded horrible. Like I, I'm setting up my employees to run on a treadmill at a very high rate of speed and looking at them saying, how do we increase the speed? That's, that's not a recipe for a happy employee. And so what I mean by take control of our business, it wasn't just like this external facing, uh, we only want to work with big merchants. It was also, this feels like a mess internally. We're just doing an enormous amount of work for people that don't fit. And the reason we're doing it is because they just walk in the door on their own and create a free trial. And all of a sudden we are forced to engage with them. And it's definitely unexpected that one of the biggest problems in our business is how to limit the number of people using the product, right? That, that's not what I expected. I expected, how do I beg people to use our product uh, and, and make them successful with it? But that, that was our reality. Yeah, you're in, a, you're in a unique position for sure to be able to do this, right? And there, there is, there's no model for this. Like I've, I don't know that I've heard, I mean, I've heard of, of apps going up market or, or changing, you know, drip went from a general ESP to focus right on, on e-commerce. And obviously that drove, you know, some people away in terms of that pivot or that focusing. So there's a model for that, but 
while you are going up market, you did it in a different way. You didn't just raise prices. You know, as you said, pricing is one piece of it. And that's where I find this whole decision and process super gutsy. It feels risky to me hearing about it. Did it feel that risky to you up front? Like, were you just like, no, I know this is going to work? Or were you like, oh my gosh, this could completely tank a lot of things? There was definitely a lot of fear, but it felt like, okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll get into the, a bit of the math around what helped me overcome the fear uh, was just being very objective in the math and saying, no, this is going to work out. And even if it's not very successful, it's still going to work out on the math and the finances, right? All of this comes back to the finances. If, if we had raised $8 million in a Series A, we would be trying to gather as much of the market as possible. But that's not what we're doing. We raised a little bit of money, and so we want a healthy, profitable company. And so if you want healthy and profitable, then you you need to live within your means. And then the reality of our situation was that just taking on as many customers as possible was not leading to that outcome. It, it had churned way too high. It had uh, the amount of work that was happening internally was too high for customers that didn't, didn't make sense. And so that's what helped us come to the conclusion of, okay, I'm going to take a risk and we're going to gather the forces. And so, yes, let's get into what we did. Jordan, I want to interrupt you real quickly. Um, You know, when you say it wasn't working for you, you know, I know that Cardhook is doing several million in ARR. So it was working to a certain extent, but was it really, was it the churn? I mean, that, that double digit churn that was the, the, what what wasn't working for you? Yes. And yeah, it's, it's all relative. Right. Yes, I really shouldn't be complaining, and it is working to a degree because because the revenue is where it is and all this. But that's from the outside perspective. From the inside perspective, sitting in my shoes, you, you right. I have to acknowledge what's good and what's bad. And just because I can say we're at several million in ARR does not mean everything is good, <laughs> right? Yeah. So so that's fair. Yeah. So I I was like I was fine with that, and and. Look, a, a lot of this role is holding two things in your head at the same time that are completely in conflict with one another. But that's just the way it is. So, yeah, the truth is it, it, it wasn't working for us in the sense that I didn't like the way the future looked. Right. There is a there's a straightforward formula that everyone can Google. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it basically tells you what your maximum revenue is given your growth and your churn. This is the maximum that you will reach. And it will not go beyond that because that's how math works. You will, you will get to a point where 12% of your revenue equals the amount of growth you're getting, and then you'll stay there forever, right, M- mathematically. And so I looked at that, and I didn't. that wasn't that far off on the horizon based on where we were currently. So we still had room. We still had another 100-plus MRR to get to that point. But I, I felt that, that we, we need to move on this now before we hit that. And then all of a sudden everything like hits a wall. So that's, that, that's what led into it. Okay. So now let's get to like this, the first big part of the decision. The first big part of the decision was on July 1st, 2019, we are doing two big things. We are shutting down the ability to create a self-serve free trial and we are changing pricing. So two like massive things at the same time. And so a lot of complexity came out of that because when you do that, you, you don't want to just do it real quietly and not say anything. You do have to acknowledge it with your existing customers because they're going to ask, hey, I noticed you changed your pricing. Does that mean my pricing is going to change? So there's a lot of communication with the existing customer base 
that went along with the changes that were intended for the non-existing customer base. Yeah, and I, I find that's a good moment where if you certainly if you are going to raise prices on your existing customers, whether you grandfather them for six months or twelve months, or whether you don't, I mean that you know there's a whole there's a whole conversation we're probably going to get into around that. But or if you're not going to raise on them at all, it's still a good time to get in touch because if you're not going to raise on them right now or in the future, then you let them know that, Hey folks, we just raised the prices and we're not going to do that for you. We're going to grandfather you for now. You know, it's a, it's a nice way. And if you aren't going to grandfather them, then it's a perfect time to get in touch and say, Hey, by the way, we're going to grandfather you for a certain amount of time, but then change it up later. And, and here's why, and give that whole, um, give the whole defense of it or the reasoning behind it. That's right. Now for, for our situation, we, we did want, to raise prices on existing customers. And that's a complicated thing because people are not used to that. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, there there is obviously debate in this in the SaaS space or just it, I think every founder has their own opinions about it. It's like I've heard people say, you know, I'm not a fan of absolutes, right? So I hate it when you say you should always grandfather, you should never grandfather, you should blah blah blah. I think that's just I, I don't think that's the correct way to think about pretty much any of this. So I think there's some in between and there's a spectrum. And I've often thought, hey, there are reasons to not grandfather, especially if you can communicate those reasons well in a, in a letter or a blog post or an email to your audience. And if, if it makes sense to them and, and it's the right thing for your business, then these are the times when, you know, when I would think about doing it. So talk me through, I know that had to have been a hard decision, you know, to grant, grandfather for a period of time is what you wound up doing. So talk me through that. Yes, it, it was a hard decision and an easy decision at the same time because the, the math of it was very straightforward that we would be foolish not to change pricing on existing customers. And, and here's why. When we started the business, we didn't have a full understanding of exactly how our business worked from a, a, a financial metrics point of view. We thought we were in the software business where we license our software to people to pay a monthly subscription fee to have access to the software, right? It's traditional SaaS. And, and the reason we thought that was because that's that's what we had in our hands at the time. Here's the software, you can use it. What we didn't realize was the significance of the payment processing that we would be doing. Uh, so we do significant payment processing, hundreds of millions of dollars annually, and we did not factor that into the business model. And that resulted in our very heavily underutilizing our GMV, right? GMV is the gross uh, merchandise value, like the total amount of money being processed through our system. So we were not monetizing our GMV. If you look at, for example, Shopify at scale, they make 50% of their money, $400 million annually around monetizing their GMV. Uh, and I think that's on somewhere around $28 billion worth of GMV total. So they're, they're at like, over a basis point, over 1% of their GMV turns into revenue for them, right? 400 million on 28 billion, it's like 1.2 or so basis points. So we were well below that. Our pricing was 0.1%, so a, t a tenth of a percent. So Shopify was making 10x what we were making on a monetizing GMV perspective. And so we didn't realize that when we first started the business. And so what, where we ended up was grandfathering pricing for existing customers on the subscription fee, right? If you pay 100 bucks a month, 300 bucks a month, 400 bucks a month, whatever that is, that will stay that way forever. But on the GMV that you're processing through our system, we moved it up from 0.1% to our new pricing of 0.5%. So it is a 5x, but still very much in line with our competition and with Shopify and with the market overall. And 
right? We, we, what we had to back that up was our software had just gotten so much better. It's not even, it's, it's tough to describe how much better and how bad it was to begin with and how much better it is now. So what we did is we put ourselves in their shoes and we said, if, if I were a merchant and I had been with Cartook for a year and I had been around when it kind of sucked and now it's better and I'm happier, but I stuck with you guys this way, how would we want to be treated in, in that situation? And so what we decided to do was write that blog post that you alluded to earlier that we should link up because that was a very complicated blog post to write and then make, make a promise that we thought was fair. And that promise was, this is the new pricing for everybody, uh, for new merchants. You will be grandfathered into your subscription price forever, but your transaction fee will go up. However, we will let you go through the entire holiday Black Friday season of 2019, and the price increase will only go into effect in January of 2020. Right. Basically saying we're not going to be bastards and raise the prices right before the holidays to maximize the amount of money we can make off you. And you have no choice because you're already using the system. We said, no, we're going to forego that revenue because that's the right thing to do. But we will be raising it after the holidays are over in January. That makes sense? Absolutely it does. And the thing I'm fascinated to hear is how did it go over? Like how many positive negative comments like what was it what was your sense of what your customer base responded with so the the truth is that we're we're, we're in the middle of it now we're, we're halfway through so we we sent out an initial email in july and then two weeks ago we sent out another email and what we said in july along with that blog post was between now and january 2020 we have six months to earn that price increase in your eyes so here's what we're planning on adding to the product, and th and this is part of the justification of the price going up. And so what, what we have been very conscious of internally and from a product and prioritization point of view is that's coming due. We will need to send an email to all those existing customers telling them that their pricing is going up next month, and this is what we promised you, and this is what we've accomplished. So we have like an internal list of these are the things that are worth noting in that email that we can say these are significant improvements and significant additions that help to justify the price increase. So when we first sent it out in July, we heard nothing, just no negative reaction. A few emails about clarification, a few questions, and then all good. So that tells me that it went over pretty well and that a lot of people didn't read it, right? That That's kind of the reality of it. And so now things are ramping up. So we, we communicated again two weeks ago saying, hey, just as a reminder, in January 2020, your pricing is going to change. We will get back in touch in December before that happens to make sure that you're you know, fully aware. And that, that communication started to cause a little bit more of a, a pushback. Uh, a lot of it was our fault because we, we communicated what the pricing change was. What we really should have done is personalized it. Right. Last month you did X and paid Y. In January, if you if you do the same X, then your pricing will be Z. Right. Like we, we should have laid that out more specifically and didn't. And because we didn't, people started doing math themselves. And if you do math emotionally, you get the wrong answer. <laughs> so so we had we had a lot of uh, email back and forth just clarifying, look, it's not going up 10x. It's here's the change for you. And on the positive side, what it's also done is it has armed us with a bargaining uh, chip with larger merchants. 
So if you're a large merchant and you're processing $2 million a month in our system and you don't want to go from 0.1% to 0.5%, then let's have a conversation and make sure you don't go all the way up to 0.5%. Let's set something up that makes sense and maybe let's get you on a 12-month contract and let's let's partner on this and, and do it the right way. So it, it has helped us get a lot of our larger merchants talking about pricing and moving toward annual contracts in order to kind of lock down a predictable cost for them as opposed to something that's variable. Right. And the thing I think, I mean, there's a number of things that, that I won't even pull out of that because it's, it's such a, it's such the right way to think about it. I, I think it's very smart. But one of the things you said was, let's think about it from their perspective, And I imagine that that sentence, that phrase was uttered many, many times in your office when you were trying to make this decision because you thought it through, you and your team thought it through to the extent of you did, you know, some people could say if they were your customer, it would be a little bit outrageous, but hey, everybody, you know, outrage is all the thing on Twitter, right? But you, I could come out and say, you 5X'd my pricing, right? Even though technically I know I'm still grandfathered into the thing, you know, the, the monthly, but like 0.1 to 0.5 is a 5X. And so I'm going to come on and be outraged. But the fact that people didn't do that indicates that you, A, had, had a case, like you had justification, and B, you communicated that in a way that made people feel comfortable, like you weren't screwing them. Yeah, it was not abstract. It was very real. It was, how is Moise from Native Deodorant going to react to this exact email that we're about to send, <laughs> right? We, we, we've gotten to know these people over time. Like, we work with them for a long time. Like, how is this specific person at this company going to take this? Are they going to go right to the Facebook page? Are they going to email us? Are they going to ask for clarification? Are they going to want to get on a call? And so everything in that communication was based around real reactions, And so it was a lot of, we're here to talk about this. Here's a Calendly link to set up a call with someone. If you want to talk about it, it was like, it was thought through that way. And that's the power of of being a founder who's in touch, a founder or a CEO who is in touch with your customer base. Because you, even at, at several million ARR and at 25 or 30 employees, you still know a bunch of customers by name. And not only do you know them by name, you know how they're probably going to react to an email. And so you think it through deep, deep. And that's like the best founders, best CEOs that I see doing this and doing hard things and not pissing their customer base off are the ones who are that in touch with them. So I think that's a big key to this. Yeah, and, and that's gotten harder. And I would say that it's shifted away from my responsibility being like super aware of these specific merchants and their personalities and relationships and more just understanding that that's important and then looking at my success team and saying, okay, let's think about these people. What's your opinion on how this person is going to react? So just knowing that that is like a key thing to keep in mind is now more important than actually like knowing and understanding the relationships themselves. So now, you know, the, the conversations we're having internally here is I, I'm asking like my leadership, the people who are who are in these communications, in these difficult email threads of does this make sense? Should I leave? You guys are being greedy. All these like really difficult email conversations. What I have to do is I have to ask them to put two hats on. Here's your empathy hat for when you're talking to people and we want to do the right thing by them. And then I'm also going to ask you to switch hats and come into a conference room with me and look at a spreadsheet that says, when we make this change, if X percent, if 30% of our customers leave and that still results in adding $100,000 to MRR, 
can you acknowledge that? Can you, do you think 30% of our customers are really going to leave? And, and, you know, the answer is no. And so, right, can you, can you carry both of those things at the same time? Can you be very empathetic to people and make sure they're, they're, they felt like we're doing right by them? At the same time, acknowledging if someone leaves, like that's, we have to be able to accept that because it, the math will work out for us. And that sets us up to be a healthier company and then hire the people we need and then get the bigger office that we need. And like, we have to have that as part of the goal. It's not just about what the customers want. It's also about our business. It's, it's both together. And that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I think that's, I think that's a big reason that, that, you know, you did have, have success with this. So what's, what's next? Yeah. Okay. So now, so that's, that's really the pricing change, right? And that our existing customers and how to communicate with them. And that's like, that's not done, but it's going in the right direction. Now, the, the bigger change is the process. And so making the switch from self-serve free trials to an application process with demos, that was, that was the harder call. That was the like scarier thing because we, we started to get, getting good. We, we started to get into the hundreds of free trials every month. And then you're taking that flow of potential revenue and you just literally just shut it down 100%. So we took the faucet that was all the way open and we closed it all the way. So now people could not create a free trial unless we sent them the link to create a free trial. So we, we shut the faucet all the way down. So we went from hundreds of free trials a month to a few dozen. And, and that's where it got scary because if you think about the, the nature of, uh, of churn, it carries on for a few months. Right. If, if we have like this messy washing machine of uh, of merchants that don't fit and only pay for one or two or three months and then they leave when when you shut down free trials, you are now going to hurt yourself both ways. Right. You're not going to be getting in new customers and the customers from the past 90 days are still going to be churning. So it was like, all right, guys, our revenue is about to go down like everyone be OK with it. We're going to keep calm. We've had this amazing run of growth, everything going up, everything going up. And now we are purposely going to just chop off like 10 to 15% of our revenue over a 90 day span. And we're just going to be okay with that. So that expectation setting was super important. So nobody freaked out because I saw what was going to happen. We're going to go from a few hundred to a few dozen, and then the churn's going to continue on. And that's really important to point out a, a, that you called it out to your team in advance, but B, most people who have never run an app where you have like big waves of customers coming in and a lot of trials. And then if you shut that off, it's exactly what you said. It's like this huge wave. The churn is, it's like going to crash, but it never crashes because your trials bolster it. And it just keeps going up and up and up and up. But the moment I've had a couple apps where we, we had hiccups, whether it was suddenly Google downgraded us or the ad stopped working or whatever it is, our trials plummeted. And it wasn't just, oh, we didn't grow that month because we didn't have as many trials. It is devastating because oftentimes your first 60 or first 90 day churn is way, way higher than your, you know, 90 day to infinity day churn. So that's the part that just crashes. And if you don't keep that constant influx top of funnel, it can be devastating. I mean, you can, like you said, 10 to 15%, a 20, 30% I've seen with smaller apps. And it's, it's painful if you're not aware that, you know, if you don't look at the math in advance. Yes. And so this is right. This is harkens back to what you mentioned a few minutes ago, where I should be happy because things are going well. I knew internally that this is what was happening that the trials were just were just keeping it afloat. 
it, and it just, the trials just kept overwhelming the churn, but that if anything happened at all to the trials coming in, then we'd be exposed. And so right, making this move was like, let's do that on our terms instead of someone else's terms. And it's also why we did it in the middle of the year, right? July 1st, literally right in the middle of the year, well in advance of the holidays so that we would kind of have our act together now. And so, so that's what happened. We completely stopped free trials and then churn kept going for 90 days and that hurt, but the, the benefits were amazing and immediate. So July 1st comes in and we just shut it down and you can't see a free trial on our site and it's, it's apply for it for a demo. And, and that terminology was super important to me. It was not request a demo. It was apply, right? It was, it was a position of power. It was, this is really good. You've heard about it. You've heard about the success people have with it. And if you want it, you need to apply. Now, we, we soft peddled it on, on the site, right? We're not like apply here to see if you're good enough for us because that, that sucks. That's, that's not good positioning. It was really apply to see if we're a fit. And then people are like, well, that's bullshit because you're just kind of, you're, you're basically just saying that we're not good enough. If, if you only want to work with successful merchants and we're up and coming and you don't want to work with us because we're not big enough and that's like not cool. In reality, it, it was much closer to let's make sure we're a fit, right? Think about all the things we've, we've been talking about. It's not just, do you make enough money? I read a Lincoln Murphy blog post about qualification uh, and he had, he had a great write-up about the different types of qualification where it's strategic, cultural, financial, all these different things that align. We have some merchants that make a million dollars a month, but we absolutely cannot stand working with them. And so th that has now become a factor in the qualification. So now we have, we, we have an actual pipeline. That sales process that was happening inside the product and a few interactions with support is now happening with people, with an application that people fill out. And then every morning the success team comes in and either denies or accepts the application. And right now we're, we're denying roughly 50% of the applications. We're just saying, does not make sense for you to work with us. Here's a link to our competitor that might make more sense for you. So we literally link to the competitor in, in that rejection email. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's such an unorthodox approach, but I, it's the velvet rope policy, right? It's, it's just letting in exactly who you want. And it, as we've said, it's a luxury. Most apps need all the trials they can get. And you hit, you know, a certain point where that made sense. But I do think that more companies should think about doing this once they hit that point. You know what it was? When I spoke to other founders about this, it, I got the sense that people were like, can you do that? <laughs> like, is that, is that okay? And to me, it felt like, well, that's what I think we should do. Why, why? It felt very strange to be like a slave to just, well, the fact that people want to use it, therefore we have no choice but to let them. What? That's, that doesn't make sense. Well, I tell you what, it's way better to do it up front than to let people in, whether it's it's just people who aren't qualified or they're the toxic type of customers that you can identify pretty early on that you're like, oh boy, this person's never going to be happy with anything and they're just going to rag on my staff the whole time and they're going to go to Twitter the moment we don't answer their email within four minutes and blah, blah, blah. And if you can get them up front and identify them that way and not have to fire customers who've been with you for two, three months who are a pain in the ass, which I think all of us have had to do and it sucks, then this <laughs> for that alone, you know, this is a pretty valuable. Um, yes. We, we call them category four. Yeah. 
right, we have category one, like the best of the best direct to consumer brands that we recognize would love to work with them. Absolutely get them in. Let's give them the, the, the white glove treatment. And we have category two that are a good fit. We have category three that are not quite there yet. It's kind of on the bubble. You know, let's, it's, it's the success team's call whether or not they, they, they should come in or not. And we have category four that are jerks. And it doesn't matter how much revenue they make. If they're going to make us miserable, they just don't get in. Yeah. Isn't that uh, hurricane? Yes. Category one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're uh, that's funny. Yep. And, and so think about what this has done internally. So a few things that it's done. First, it's established an actual sales pipeline that we can optimize. And so what we did there is first we, we, we took a stab at what we think the pipeline actually looks like from, right, think about the different stages. We get a demo, whether they, they get approved, then they get the link to uh, set up a time to talk. Then they get the link to sign up after that. Uh, then they've created a free trial and then they're launched and have uh, processed revenue. And then they're into like, like really, you know, the conversion piece of it. So before we didn't have those steps, it was just free trial and then hope the product does its job. So now what, what we did is we set up that pipeline and, and those steps and we have, we have it in HubSpot but I got a good recommendation from someone, I can't remember exactly who, uh, to put it up on the wall. I got a bunch of uh, postcard, not postcards, index cards, and we got a bunch of markers, and we got this little like tacky like stuff that sticks to the wall, and we created the categories as columns on our wall, and then each prospect got a postcard, uh, an index card with their name on it, and we would physically move the postcard from stage to stage. Just like, and it was just mimicking HubSpot. So you would move in a HubSpot, you'd go to the wall and you'd move it from one column to the next. And what that did is it showed the entire company in visual, physical format, what was happening with our sales pipeline instead of just, I don't know, we got a few hundred trials. The, the second thing it did is it was a dead obvious way to see where the friction was. So the friction is the columns that have the most people, <laughs> that, right? Pretty simple. And then what it told us is that stage in the pipeline is where we have a lot of friction and that's where we need to get the communications and marketing teams to create content. So now what does the success team need in order to help merchants get from that column to the next column and then start creating content, videos, support docs to help people through that so that the success team can provide those and, and the, the merchant can also get it on their own. So it was this, you know, we, we did it for like three months or so. We, we, we've since taken it down. It, it's not, no longer as useful as it was in the beginning. But at first, when we first made the switch, it just had this amazing impact. And we, you know, I have a bell on my desk. And when someone became a paying customer, I would hit the bell. And it was like this visceral experience for people on now, like we're not a company that like, just like answers emails, like we're doing something specific. We're finding people, identifying who the right people are, moving them through this pipeline and getting them to success. I love that idea of the visual nature of it and just seeing cards. And it's like, that is, it must be so obvious visually and just be an amazing cue for you guys. So that that's really cool. Yeah. It was, you know, there was just a very large vertical stack of prospects that didn't go from, let's say, approved, but but didn't schedule the actual appointment to do the demo. Like, okay, we need to do, we need to be better at that. An obvious one was also like, they've created a trial, but they're not processing revenue yet. So they need to like get over the hump of actually using the product. 
one thing I didn't mention earlier on the pricing is that not only did we remove self-serve free trials, but we removed free trials entirely. So we ask for the first $500 up front at the time of signup, and then we have a 30-day money-back guarantee instead of the free trial. So this is like, it's all toward the same type of positioning of like, let's make sure that you're a good fit. And then once we know you're a good fit, like then you commit to us. We're committing to you, you commit to us, and let's like, let's do this together. Yeah, and in a way it's, you know, when you look at large enterprise companies, like let's say a, a HubSpot or Salesforce or something, and I know, you know, they get a bad rap for being enterprises and they're a pain in the ass to deal with and they're too expensive and their sales process sucks and all that. But you, you're kind of moving somewhere between self-serve and what they do. You know, it sounds like there's, there is less friction. There is, is your pricing public on your website? Yes, it is. Yeah. So the pricing's public. So that's a difference, right? Cause they tend to hide it behind a thing and then it's a negotiation and blah, blah, blah. And you, so, so there's differences there, but you really have, you've, you've put up the velvet rope, you've gone up market, you've, you know, there are typically are not free trials with these really expensive enterprise plans. It's typically, it's all annual and I don't think you're there yet, but my guess is you'll, you'll be moving there because there's a lot of reasons to do that both predictability for the merchant, but also predictability, you know, for you. So you are taking that step towards, it's really the upmarket playbook, right? Yeah. And, and the, the results, if you think about internally going from hundreds of free trials to a few dozen, what we've been able to do is give love to the right merchants. Like we've told our support team, like, guys, we're no longer doing things. It's not about crushing tickets. You could take your time. You could spend 45 minutes on an email as long as on the other end, the person goes, wow, that was everything I needed and you took your time and I feel great about it. So the, the fewer, more qualified merchants is like the theme. So we're much calmer internally. Our support staff is like, you know, they finish things up by like 11 and then they're doing support docs and they're helping testing on, on the product team and everyone's happier. People who are jerks, no one feels the need like, hey, I, I guess I can't turn down money because it's not my business. Like now they're empowered. If this person sucks, tell them to get lost. Uh, so people are more empowered, they're happier, and our monthly churn went from 12%, and then it, it continued on for those few months, and now we're, what is it, five or so months later, and we're at 5% monthly churn. Oh, man. Wow. And that's crazy, and it's such a testament to, you know, we, in the on the podcast and in the whole microconf community, what's funny is like before we started talking about this and all, you know, let's say 2010, there wasn't just this common knowledge of a lot of things that we talk about, like, Hey, lower priced products have higher churn and the people are, you know, the customers are typically more of a pain in the ass. Like we kind of all know that now, right? You know that if you're selling a $10 product, everybody's price sensitive, your churn is through the roof. They want all the features they want, you know, it's, it's just known now, but then there's the next step up of like, well, $50, price point, you know, average revenue per customer, $100 average revenue per customer, that became you guys were at such high volume that even those numbers didn't make sense anymore. It just didn't make sense to service them because there was such a small portion. There were a huge portion of your customer base and your trial base, a very small portion of your actual revenue, right? And now it's like, well, now we can only bother or we should only focus on whatever it is, 500 to $2,000 a month of average revenue per user or whatever. So that that's the step that was, it's obvious, very, obviously very deliberate. And I'm just struck by the impact. It's not one thing. It rippled through the entire business in positive ways, in mostly positive ways, it sounds like. You know, the fact that your support people now have the ticket, the ticket volume is whatever it is, a tenth of what it used to be is just phenomenal. Yeah. So it's, it, it was, the way we look at it is it really made 
a healthier company. And the, right, the growth in 2019 was, was nothing nearly like 3x of the previous year, but now we're in a position to grow in a much healthier way. And so right now, going back to the faucet analogy, now that we've tightened it up all the way and fully control everything, now that we have our systems in place and we understand who the right matches are and the systems are better, the people are happier, now we can start to open up a little bit on our terms and grow faster, but in our way, right? So an example is now when someone's a category three, so they're qualified, but they're not one or two, we send them a recorded version of the demo. And so now we can open that growth back up, but on our terms in under control. And if we don't like the way that's going, we'll just shut that back down. We've talked a lot about the positives. Has there been, was there like a, a major negative repercussion to this? I mean, just finances. Yeah, that, that short term. Yeah, the, sh- the short term financial hit, that, that hurt and it's, that's just a stressful thing. So, you know, we did that with what I felt was enough money in the bank that we wouldn't get to the point where I felt like I had to go raise more money. I wanted to get through this in a way that we would come out the other side. And, and really, if you think about all the way back, the decision to increase prices on existing customers and that kicking in in January, like what we really need to do was just get through the six month period. And now this, the increase in pricing on that GMV that's coming in the door already is going to overwhelm all of the negative impact of it. And then we'll be in a position where we are much more profitable and much happier at the same time. So it was like just six months of, of pain, but all toward putting ourselves into a, a good spot in, in 2020. Yeah. And that's playing long ball, right? It's like you have a long-term mindset. You're not churning and burning. Oh, how can I maximize revenue now to raise the next round or to have an exit or whatever it is? You're thinking, if I'm going to run this company for years, like what is the healthiest company and what, what company do we all want to work for? And what's best really for the customers that are the best fit, you know, what's best. And so the six months of pain, I'm sure it has sucked, but you're basically coming out of the other side of that. And so I hope, I hope January is, is truly an amazing month for you. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. Well, I, I appreciate the ability to kind of talk talk through the whole thing. I'm actually writing a blog post about this. So I'll, I'll let you know when when that's out. Sounds cool. I, I know it's all unique to each individual business, uh, but the big lesson I hope people get from it is that you don't have to play by what you think are established rules. You should do what you think is best for your business. Love it, man. And we will link up the price increase blog post that you talked about. And I have that link right here. And then I Googled Lincoln Murphy blog post about qualification and hopefully it's the same one. We will also link that up. And then if you get the, your post published before this goes live, we can throw that in there as well. If folks want to keep up with what you're up to, they can go to at Jordan Gall. It's G-A-L, Jordan Jordan Gall, some people say, Jordan Gall on Twitter. And carthook.com is your app. Any other places they should keep their eye on? Yeah, I also do a podcast with my, my good friend, Brian Castle, called Bootstrapped Web. And so, yeah, th- those are three places, Twitter, Cardhook, and Bootstrapped Web. Sounds great. Thanks again for coming on, man. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Jordan for coming on the show. 
Also, I should call out episode 452 of this podcast. Just a few months ago, Jordan came on and answered listener questions with me. So if you're interested to hear more of his thought process, go back, listen to 452, and you can hear his take on several listener questions. And if you have a question for me or a future guest, leave me a voicemail at 888-801-9690 or email questions at startupfortherestofus.com. As you know, our theme music, it's an excerpt from a song by Moot. It's called We're Out of Control. It's used under Creative Commons. You can subscribe to us in any podcatcher. Just search for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com if you want to see a transcript of each episode as well as to see show notes and comments by other loyal Startups for the Rest of Us listeners and to leave a comment of your own if you want to give a thumbs up, your thoughts, constructive criticism, whatever it might be on any of the shows. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.